I'm going to ask if you could please stand in reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage this morning. And I know what it says up there, or will say up there, to uh, verse 19, but I'm actually going to keep on going. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So uh, turn with me in your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit unless how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute and harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is, un, that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none of that is without meaning. But if I do not know what the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how could anyone say in the position of an outsider, sorry, how would anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign for, not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, you will be convicted by all, for he is called to account by all. The secrets of the heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be at most only two or three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. 
And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking of tongue in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we pray with confidence in your Holy Spirit that your Holy Spirit has given gifts to your church for the building up of the body. And we pray through the power of your Spirit that this church will be built up today through this proclamation of the word. We ask, Father, you give us hearts and minds to understand what is a, is a difficult and controversial subject and help us to walk in obedience to you in this, your church, who you have purchased with your blood, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you, you could tell by that uh, well-used puzzle uh, that I brought up for the kids, my kids really enjoy doing puzzles. And so do I. A few years ago, we stayed at the Fairhaven Retreat Center near Vernon for a couple nights, and, and when we got there, we were very excited to find a puzzle of Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is, is Liam's, or was at least Liam's favorite Bible story. This is a big puzzle, about 500 pieces. So we made the kitchen table our workplace, and I I first propped up the box on its side so that we could see what the, the final uh, result was supposed to look like. And then I, I began to set apart the edge pieces, especially the, the corner pieces, to, to set out the, the boundaries for the puzzle. And once we had the border completed, we began to do work on the middle of the puzzle. We spent hours on it. But finally, on our, our last night, we were closing on the end. But you guessed it. There was a piece missing. Now, in this case, someone had actually written on the box about the, the missing piece. And, and so they said where the, where the snake is, that the, the piece is missing. And so we knew it was coming, but it's, it was still frustrating. We spent all that time on the puzzle and it just it wasn't quite complete. I'm not that much of a perfectionist, but, but maybe in puzzles I am. I wanted that one piece. So it was frustrating. But what is is equally frustrating and perhaps even more frustrating as the children found out is is trying to build a puzzle when there uh, there are a bunch of extra puzzle pieces thrown into the box with the puzzle you're trying to build sometimes when when our our kids put puzzles back in their boxes they get kind of jumbled and and it takes a lot more work to try to sort through what what belongs there and what doesn't belong there as we show the kids, trying to fit the wrong pieces into your puzzle would damage the pieces around it. But there, there's times that the piece might even be close that it looks like it, it could actually fit the proper place. But it doesn't belong there. It doesn't actually belong there. And if you were to, to use pieces like that, the finished product would not look anything like what the puzzle is supposed to look like. So if you don't keep the picture on the box in front of you, you're never going to be able to sort through the pieces. Maybe some of you can see where I'm going with this. 
The, the church is like a puzzle, and the Word of God is like the picture on the box. You start with the edge pieces, especially the corners, and they are the, the foundational pieces. And during the whole process, you need to keep referring back to the picture on the box so you know what the puzzle is supposed to look like. You need to keep going back to the Word of God. The Word of God describes the way people in the church are supposed to fit together and what they're supposed to do. But the Word of God also shows us the completed picture. It shows us not just what the church is supposed to look like, but why. You see, the church is not an end unto itself. The church exists for the glory of the triune God. God the Father gave His Son. The Father and the Son gave the Holy Spirit to the church. The Holy Spirit gave gifts to the church to point the church to the Son and to regenerate our hearts and apply the Son's work to us. And the Son gives us life and enables us to come to the Father. But the failure to keep your eyes on the Word of God will inevitably lead to distortion and to error in the church. Two common errors in the church are missing puzzle pieces and extra puzzle pieces. To the extent that cessationist churches don't keep their eyes on the Word of God, they have missing pieces, people who are not using the spiritual gifts that they have been given for the building of the church. And to the extent that charismatic churches don't keep their eyes on the Word of God, they add extra pieces promoting spiritual gifts that don't really belong in the church. We need to stop for a moment and revisit these two terms, charismatic and cessationist. Okay, properly understood, under, uh, charismatic, a charismatic is the one who focuses on the so-called sign gifts, especially prophecy and tongues and miracles. And these people are sometimes also called continuationists because they believe that the gifts that were given at, at Pentecost in the book of Acts continue in the same way as they did when they were first given. These people are also referred to as Pentecostals because they believe that they are that these are continuing gifts that were given to the church on Pentecost. But a cessationist, on the other hand, believes that the gifts as given in the book of Acts have ceased. And we're more likely to rely, in, in our context, more likely, I think, to rely on our minds and to overlook the gifts of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. And, and, and many of us are, are actually cessationists. Now, for, for lack of better words, um, I'm, I'm going to, to be using these, these words charismatic and cessationist, but I believe that these, these terms are actually misleading. The term charismatic is misleading because all Christians are charismatic, because I've said, to this, said this before, but charismatic is just a, is this just a transliteration of the word gift. And all Christians are gifted by the Holy Spirit for ministry in the church. So all Christians are charismatic in the true sense of the word. The term cessationist is misleading as well. Because cessationists, at least the ones that, that I know of and read, do not deny that spiritual gifts have, sorry, do not deny that, that some spiritually gifts ha have continued. They only argue that the sign gifts have ceased. And even there, at least, this is again, the cessationists that I know, know and, read, and read, believe that, that things, at least things like healing, can still take place, but they would call it a miracle. 
But I'd call it a miracle when it happened in the first century as well. So again, I'd, for, for lack of, of, of better terms, I will use the word um, charismatic and, and cessationist as they're popularly understood, but, but again, I, I, I don't think that they're the, they are, I think that they can be misleading. In our studies of the spiritual gifts so far, we've been more conscious of the error that is common in cessationist circles, people not using their spiritual gifts. And so this, this morning, though, we're going to focus more on the error that it is common in charismatic churches, adding gifts that are not real or distorting the understanding of the gifts. I want to say from the outset, and, and, and I need, listen carefully to this, please. I, I do not believe that the gifts continue in the same way that they continued in the book of Acts. I do not believe that the vast majority of the so-called prophecy, tongues, and miracles that, that take place in charismatic churches is genuinely a work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that at best, most often it is misguided human effort. Often it is human manipulation and deception. And at times it is even demonic manifestation. Now I have had experiences of the practice of sign gifts, but I must interpret those experiences through scripture. What does the scripture say about these things? What is the, what is the fruit of many churches where the focus is these things? And I think most often they can be characterized as failing to focus on the Word of God. Focusing on the truths of God's Word is precisely what the Holy Spirit was given to do. To help the church to focus on the Word of God. We'll talk about this passage this passage more depth when we get to the, the gift giver in John 16, 13. But, John, but it says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. But what happens is, is a focus on sign gifts does not take people to the Word of God, but most often leads them away from the Word of God. And, it's, and so it undermines the sufficiency of Scripture because, the, because people are encouraged to focus on experiences and additional words from the Lord beyond the Bible. I need to say from the outset that this is not true in, in all charismatic churches or individuals. I've met charismatics, especially those who identify themselves as reformed charismatics who strive to keep the Bible at the center. And I would, I would disagree with, with much of what they believe, but I, I believe that at least in, in reformed charismatic circles that there is this, this desire to keep the Bible at the center. But again, the majority of charismatics, and, I, and I've read, I've read uh, I mean, not extensively, but I've read a fair bit on these things. And I've, as I said, I've, I've experienced, I've been part of churches where, where these things are the focus. They, they tend to focus on experience. And so, the, so the word, where the word of God is used, the interpretation is often inaccurate, resorts to biblicism, and is a failure to take into context the whole counsel of God's word. And the understanding is often cut loose from historical, theological meaning that it does not line up with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And, and I, I've, I've seen this personally on, on several occasions, many occasions. Now, where that's the case, at best, it is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. But quite often, it actually amounts to an undermining of the foundation of the church. 
And this is characterized by the vineyard movement with its focus on experience. It's, 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 in their core values, they say experience-based worship is the central activity of all we do at Vineyard. We believe that the, that the Spirit distributes gifts to us resulting in prophecy, prayer languages, healing, miracles, and many other gifts as we joyfully experience His presence. And this attitude results in all kinds of behavior. People are supposedly slain in the Spirit, laughing hysterically, barking like dogs, and doing all kinds of things that, that are not only foreign to the Word of God, they are contrary to the Word of God. And they do not reflect the orderly worship that God commands in 1 Corinthians 14. Not only do they fail to focus on the Word of God, but they also fail to focus on Jesus Christ, which again is precisely what the Holy Spirit was given to do, to, to direct people to Jesus. Again, from John 16, verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit's role in the life of a believer is to point them to the Word of God and specifically to point them to Christ. Again, we'll focus on this more in a couple of weeks, but, but Jesus told the disciples it was actually better that he would depart so that he could send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. As is stated in the Nicene Creed of 381, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit continues the work of the ascended Christ in the church. That's the focus of Acts. Jesus Christ is building his church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the church. But those who focus on the charismatic gifts often fail the very things that they're supposed to do to build up the church in conformity to Christ. So the focus on the gifts has in many cases done the exact opposite. At its worst, you have the new apostolic reformation. This and the related word faith movement are heretical. They teach that the son emptied himself of his deity in the incarnation and performed miracles as a spirit-filled man and that faith produces health and wealth because we as spirit-filled people have the ability to control the weather and to, to heal did all these things that, that Jesus did. Bethel Church in, in Redding, California is one of the most infamous examples. Several large churches in Kelowna are closely aligned with Bethel. Betty Hinn and, and Kenneth Copeland have made millions of dollars teaching these lies. So then again, to be very clear, I do not think that the beliefs and practices of the sign gifts in the vast majority of churches that call themselves charismatic are actually gifts of the Holy Spirit. However, and this is also important, I do not deny the possibility of sign gifts in the church today. And the main reason for my position is the main reason that most cessationists give to say the gifts have ceased. The sufficiency of Scripture. Most cessationists contend that the gifts have ceased because the canon of Scripture is now closed and we no longer need sign gifts because their purpose was to point to the authenticity of the messenger and the message. And, and I actually concur that we no longer need these sign gifts in the same way that they were given in the early church because we have the closed canon of scripture however the scripture does not say or even infer that the gifts have ceased in fact the only verse about them ceasing is it was read for us in first corinthians uh, 13 is that they will cease when the perfect comes and that's christ so we're going to say that the scriptures are sufficient we cannot go beyond what the scriptures teach on this or any spiritual issue 
Furthermore, I've, I've, even though most cessationists appeal to the sufficiency of Scripture, I've often heard, even from respected Bible teachers, experience presented as proof for cessationism. They appeal to their own experience, saying, I've never experienced sign gifts, or I've experienced counterfeit sign gifts. But you see what they're doing? These cessationists accuse charismatics of relying on experience, but they are relying on experience too. Again, I agree that many charismatics are relying on experience instead of the word of God. But these cessationists are doing the same thing. Brothers and sisters, be very careful not to inform your opinion or form your opinion based on experience, whether positive or negative. Your experience is subjective. From your, from your, form your opinion, rather, as you interpret experience through the grid of Holy Scripture. So then what does the scripture say about the sign gift? This morning I read from 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is answering a question that the Corinthian church had written to him about this very issue. Paul takes three full chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, to answer them. In chapter 12, he says the gifts were given by the Spirit for the sake of the body. In verse, or chapter 13, rather, he declares that love is the most excellent way, that, that tongues and prophecy will cease, but love abides forever. And then in chapter 14, Paul emphasizes prophecy over tongues because prophecy builds up the church while tongues fails to do so unless there is an interpreter. Prophecy and tongues are, are the two most prominent sign gifts that are emphasized in charismatic churches. The others are miracles and healing. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the sign gifts of, of prophecy and tongues from 1 Corinthians 14. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at miracles and healing. Now, we've already looked at, at prophecy as we examine the extraordinary office of the prophet from Ephesians 4.11. But, but I want to, to revisit this because I've, I've at least somewhat changed my position. There, there's a change in my position on these things as I've studied this more. Don't worry, I'm not going to say that I'm... I'm not going to start speaking in tongues up here. But first, by way of review, I explained that the prophets that were referred to in Ephesians 4.11 refers to the extraordinary office of those who wrote the Word of God, including the New Testament writers of Scripture. These are the, the, the men who helped lay the foundation of the church. However, I also explained that, that other prophets are referred to in both New and Old Testament who did not write Scripture. In the Old Testament, you have the, the sons of the prophets and even King Saul. In the New Testament, you have the daughters of Philip the Evangelist and Agabus who prophesied a famine and that Paul would be bound by the Jews. Now, while it is true that they did not write Scripture, I believe I was wrong in my understanding that this meant that the prophecies were not 100% accurate. That is the position of, of D.A. Carson and Wayne Grudem. Now, the, these men are both theological heavyweights, but I think they're, they're wrong. Grudem admits that his position is novel, that it's not reflected in church history. Now, now, that should be a red flag right off the bat, that there are two levels, that there's another form of prophecy that is, is, is under that of, of, of being 100% accurate. He appeals to verses like 1 Corinthians 14.29 from a passage this morning where Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and that others weigh what is said. And in verse 32, that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And I explained that, that if, if these prophets were equal to Scripture, there'd be no need to test them because the Scripture is the standard. But I, I think, as I said, I think that, that position is wrong. 
I was especially helped on this by an article from Pastor Stephen Kring, uh, among others. And if you're interested in, in this, I'd be, I'd be more than happy to provide you with some resources. And this is from the article. David Farnell, who was actually my, my supervisor for my doctorate, writes that the early church uses Old Testament prophets and prophecy as a model for New Testament prophets and prophecy. And here the understanding is a direct continuity between Old Testament and New Testament prophets as seen in the early church. And so in order to be, in order to be considered a prophecy, it had to be fulfilled exactly. Otherwise, uh, if it was not fulfilled exactly, a prophet was labeled a false prophet. And their prophecy was to be rejected. And at times they were even commanded to be stoned. In other, in other words, there, there, were, there was no allowance for different levels of prophecy. As Stephen Crane contends, the, the early church did not adopt a lower standard of evaluation or accept a different definition of the nature of New Testament prophecy. New Testament prophets had to have 100% accuracy just as their Old Testament counterparts. Let's think about this in the, in the New Testament and its relation to the Old Testament. The inauguration of the new covenant meant that prophecy would increase and spread. Back in, in Numbers chapter 11, the Lord told Moses to gather 70 men, you probably remember the story, to, to gather 70 men to be elders of the people, and that the Lord would, would give them some of the measure of the Spirit that was on Moses. And so the Lord gave that to them, and they prophesied. However, there were two more men, Eldad and Medad, who were prophesying in the camp, and, and Joshua ran and told Moses telling Moses to stop them. But listen to Moses' reply in verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. He's saying that he, he, he was, it's his desire that, that all of the Lord's people would be prophets. And this is the, we see the fulfillment of this in the new covenant in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was now to be poured out on all believers. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. We'll be, we'll be going there again later on, but, but specifically in this context. In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he says in, in verses uh, 28 and 29, I've got the wrong, sorry, the wrong reference. It's um, this is the right verse. Uh, sorry, yeah, 17 and, 20, and 18. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams on, every, on your male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is fulfilled in Pentecost. In the, in the Old Covenant, the only ones who, who had the... Again, all Christians, Old Testament and New Testament, were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Covenant, it was only prophets and, and kings who were given a measure, that, an extra measure of the Holy Spirit for, for ministry. But now in um, Pentecost, the, the newness of the New Covenant says that now all believers now receive the Holy Spirit for ministry. Again, all believers have always been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but there's an extra sense in which they're now empowered for ministry through the Holy Spirit. There is no discontinuity between the standard of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Yeah, this is showing that it's, it's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is the it is the now the prophecy in the in the New Testament that all flesh, the Spirit will be poured on all flesh, and sons and daughters will prophesy. Again, there's no no discontinuity between the standard of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Now, this should cause fear and trembling among those who claim that the Lord has directly communicated a specific message for a specific person about a specific issue. One error means being labeled a false prophet. I believe that the vast majority of those who claim to be prophets in charismatic churches are false prophets insofar as they claim to have words from God. Just think about what is the, the content uh, of these prophecies. And, and I've, I've had this, this happen. That, that, and I don't claim to say this is, is what it always is, but this is common. I've heard this from many, many people that, that prophecy is, is the content is, is, is not calling out for sin. It's not calling to repentance and faith in Christ. It's usually something like, like God is going to do amazing things through you or, or something like that. It's usually something that is as general, as accurate, as directed by the Holy Spirit as a hor horoscope in the daily newspaper. So then, what is prophecy now and what does it entail today? Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul highlights prophecy above tongues because, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so those who are gifted in this sense build up the body through the proclamation of God's word. And, and so I believe prophecy is simply, is, and, and most often, is just simply the exposition of Scripture. Most prophecy is, takes place in the course of preaching in which a man will speak powerfully in proclamation, not so much in a foretelling, but a forthtelling of God's word. And, and while it's true that some are more gifted than, than others, we see it repeatedly that, that these gifts, that we all have a measure of, of this gift, but that some are particularly gifted. As R.C. Sproul says, all believers, in a sense, are God's prophets in the new covenant, but this does not involve a new revelation of any kind. We are prophets insofar as we believe and teach only what the living and scripturated word teaches. You'd be very careful to understand this. We do not need prophecy in the same way that the church did before the closing of the canon. However, we also need to be careful to understand that the, the sufficient scriptures do not close the door. Again, prophecies will cease. And I believe this is true in the, in the wider sense of the, of the prophecies as well. We have no clear sense in Scripture that, that they are going to cease altogether. Now, I, I will say that in the context of where, where we have churches that, that we have the Word of God, and we don't need these, these prophecies, that we get nothing extra from these things that we don't get in the Word of God. But I hear of, of, of situations, and especially it seems to take place in, in the mission field, where, where these sorts of things happen. And, and I, I do believe in the, the approach of the of the return of the Lord, that we will see a return of some of these things taking place. Again, not like what is taking place in, in the so-called charismatic churches, but in line with, with what took place in the early church. Now, again, you, you may disagree with me on this, but, but I, really, I really believe that, that we need to be careful not to close the door where Scripture doesn't close the door, as those who appeal to the sufficiency of Scripture. But we, need, we must interpret everything Everything, our opinions, our experiences, by the word of God. Okay, so that's prophecy. 
Now let's move on to tongues, and, and with that, I'll include interpretation. I'll be spending, I'll spend a little less time on this because, because we'll be spending more time on it when we get to Acts chapter 2. But let's, let's turn there from the outset again back to Acts chapter 2. First of all, Acts 1.8, which is really, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll see that as we start our study in Acts, that, that Acts 1.8 is really um, like the summary verse of, of, of all of Acts. It's Acts. The rest of Acts is really the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, where Jesus told the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And this power came in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it fulfilled in the day of Pentecost when, when you, the, the disciples were, were gathered in an upper room and there was a sound of mighty rushing wind and it filled the house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so here we have the introduction of speaking in tongues. And then we see what the speaking in tongues looks like from, from, from what happens next. There were some dwelling in Jerusalem, devout Jews, men from every nation. So this is a, a holy day. And so there was a festival and, and, and Jews from, from all over were, were gathered in Jerusalem, people from all kinds of different languages. And at the sound of this, the multitude came together in verse 6. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then... Luke describes, tells, gives us a list of all the, the nations that were represented. But others, they, they all heard, um, they heard them, they say, testify, both, both at verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were amazed and perplexed. And asked, what does this mean? But there were others present who mocked them and said they were filling, filled with new wine. So they, they thought that these guys were drunk. But Peter responds in his sermon saying that, that this is only, it's the sixth hour of the day. It's, it's lunchtime. Sorry, it's the third hour of the day. It's the third hour of the day. Nine o'clock in the morning. And he goes on to talk about this is the fulfillment of, of the prophet Joel. That the Spirit will be poured out on, on all, all Christians. But most, most charismatics, as they look at that, at that event... They believe that this was a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at conversion. And they believe that, it, that it, this presents itself through the practice of sign gifts, especially speaking in tongues. It really so often hinges on speaking in tongues. But this is a real language. This was, was understood by, by real people as their own language. Now, again, this was, it was miraculous, but this is what was taking place. This was an actual language. This was not um, what, what um, Paul speaks about in, 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 1, Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, one of, a, of an angelic language. I believe there Paul is, is speaking hyperbolically because, the, because of how the gifts are presented in Acts chapter 2. You know, on Pentecost, people heard people speak in their own language. I believe this is a language that was, was unknown to the speaker, but known by those who heard. This was what took place at Pentecost. Now, as a, as a young believer, 
I experienced these things. In the sense of, I was, I was told that unless you speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Right? You, you may have heard that because it all it focuses on tongues, this, this sign gift. It, my reply was, was from Romans 8.11, that if the Spirit who raised him from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, all believers have the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. And I said, look, if, if God wants to give me the gift of tongues, I'm... I'm not going to make it happen. They said, well, just, just start talking in these, these, maybe you've experienced this. Just, they'll say, just start talking and, and this stuff will come out of your mouth. You've probably heard people say that to you if you visited a charismatic church or, or had charismatic friends. It's like, I'm not going to, going to make it happen if God wants to give me the gift. And I had, this was a, as, a, as a young believer, I was, I was only less than, less than two years old in the Lord. But later on, I began, I got swept up in this thing. This is years later when I moved to Australia. I got swept up in this and, and, and began to experience what was taking place in a, in, a, in a church, again, that was labeled charismatic. So a small home group. And these, these gifts and the, the practice of it was actually used to manipulate people and to control people. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is, is always the case, but it is very, very common. Because as soon as somebody is now has, a, has another gift that is beyond what others have, there's now a two-tiered Christianity. This takes place in the sense of prophecy as well, because people use these so-called prophecies to now control other people, the decisions that they make in their lives. Again, it's not always the case, but, but even but, but the general sense in charismatic churches is that, if, is that if you are not speaking in tongues, you are missing out. That's the reason why the, the, the full gospel church is called the full gospel because they believe if we're not focusing on tongues or speaking tongues, we don't have the full gospel. If you don't have the full gospel, you're not a Christian. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, says that the difference between Pentecost and Corinth lies in the fact that those who heard tongues in Jerusalem already possessed the key for their interpretation. They understood, they understood foreign languages since they were their native tongues, Acts 2.11. No translation was required. In contrast, by contrast, in Corinth, it was necessary for an interpreter to speak. So it was, it was an indistinct sound. They didn't, couldn't understand what was being said because there was no interpreter. And that's why they said, pray for an interpretation so that there would actually be somebody who would, would actually understand the language, a real language. Again, I do not believe that what is being considered tongues in most churches today is what took place at Pentecost. And again, you see this in the fruit. You see this in, and again, this focus on these experiences. You see that there's a lack of, of orderly worship. You see so many areas where, where they're completely off in their interpretation, understanding of Scripture. Just not only adding to things to the Word of God, but actually taking away things of God and, and the Word of God and then denying the Word of God and and distracting people away from Christ. In the context of, of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that he speaks tongue in tongues more than anyone. But, but in verse 19, nevertheless, in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a, in a tongue. With the practice of tongues that you see in the vast majority of charismatic churches today, the church is not being built up not being built up, is being torn down. 
This is a sign, Paul says, for unbelievers. We saw that in Acts 2 as well. There was those who, who responded to what was taking place and they, and they rejected it. Because they, they, didn't, they did not have, have, the, have the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. And so again, I, I think we need to be very careful and we need to measure what is taking place in these churches against the Word of God and say this, is, this does not line up. However, there's always a however. We need again to be careful to submit to the sufficiency of Scripture. And the Scriptures do not say that tongues have ceased. It says they will cease when the perfect comes. And so we need, if we're going to rely on the word of God, we can't add to the word of God and say that definitively that it will never happen, that it has never happened after that time or could never happen again. And again, in line with, 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 this, with these passages, I've, I've heard of situations where, where a missionary will go into the, the foreign mission field and will speak and the people, even though he doesn't speak the language of the people, and they will understand what he's saying as though he was speaking in their own language. This is a relatively. This is is. This is not obscure. This this again. There's there is very good testimony based on on conservative missionaries. Say they have experienced this. Brothers and sisters, there there is only one way that the puzzle fits together properly, and there are only certain pieces for each puzzle. Different pieces have different rules. Again, there are corner pieces, there are edge pieces. An edge piece won't fit in the middle, a middle piece won't fit in the edge. The corner pieces are vital because they, they form the basis for the whole thing. And the edge pieces are vital because they form a boundary for the whole puzzle. But, but each piece is vital. Each piece, each gift that the Holy Spirit has given to the church is vital. Again, some may have more than one gift, there's sky pieces and ground pieces and building pieces and animal pieces, and, but each piece it must be in its proper place. If you try to put a piece that does not belong, you're going to damage the puzzle and the picture won't look like that on the box. Extra pieces that are not really part of the puzzle do damage and rob God of his glory. And when you look carefully at the box, you can see where they don't belong. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, as they are understood in most so-called charismatic circles, are, have, are added pieces that aren't really part of the puzzle. And we'll look at, at the understanding of, of miracles and, and, and healing next week. When you look carefully at the Word of God, you can see that they're not really there. Because they've distorted what they actually are. And you can see that they go wrong in, in, in what they focus on and what they fail to focus on. They fail to focus on the Word of God. They fail to focus on Christ. May we be those who use the gifts that God has given us for the building up of the church in the word to conformity in Christ. Let's pray together. Great and glorious God, we, when we think about these things, there, there are many opinions, many ideas, many experiences we pray that, that you would help us all by your Holy Spirit to interpret 
these things and to form our opinions based on your word. We pray that you'd help us to interpret all of life according to your word. Where there are are others who have different opinions on these things, even in in this own local church we have different opinions on these things, but may may we consider, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, at the beginning of 14, the more excellent way, that of love. We pray that you would supernaturally enable us to love one another and to serve one another for your glory. We pray that through the power of your spirit, you would empower your church with spiritual gifting that would build your church according to your word in conformity to Christ for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.